friends. Welcome to Womankind. This is your host, Kelsey Novitz, and I'm here in episode 66 with Juaria Dahir. She is the external affairs manager in the mayor's office of citizen services, and she is a city planner. So hi, Juaria. Hi, Kelsey. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks. So we've already talked about this a little bit before we came on here, but I think it's important to do this in the time of the pandemic. Just tell my listeners a little bit about how you're doing, where you are, how you're adapting in this time. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Kelsey. Um, yeah, again, my name is Juaria Dahir. Thank God I'm doing well. Um, I have two little boys who are obviously keeping me busy. Um, so I'm a parent slash doing my career um, slash being a teacher and everything else in between, but very thankful that nobody's gotten sick. So mm-hmm. staying at home, really, we're fortunate to be able to be together and really spend more time together also. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Thumbs up for that. Mm-hmm. That is a nice thing. And even after this great number of days, <laughs> if you can still say that, I think that you're in pretty good shape. <laughs> I <love> that. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you arrived here in Buffalo and how you arrived into the position that you currently have? Sure, no problem. Um, so um, ethnically, I am East African and I was born in the region between Ethiopia and Somalia. Um, it's the um, Horn of Africa. And the time that I was born in 1991, 92, early 90s, that entire time, there was a civil war that was breaking up. Um, between that region also, um, it meant that a lot of families had to migrate. Um, and as such, um, the minute I was born, it, my mom told me that I was two weeks old, that they ended up um, packing their bags and leaving. Wow. So was for my, my father and my mother, and I at the time had two siblings, two older siblings. We, my mom also later had um, a younger son. And so we packed our bags and left East Africa. And at the time, um, my father was working for the UN, and there were two options. There was asylum um, process with um, Switzerland and also with Italy. And so I know there were like two places you would think most people would migrate to their neighboring countries, but I think my parents pretty much packed their bags and left the entire continent. But um, we ended up stopping first at Italy um, and soon realized within a day or two, it was very difficult to raise a family there. Many people who were migrating to Italy at the time were either single individuals or families with no children. So they were able to pick up um, blue collar jobs and kind of stabilize themselves. Um, for families, however, it was a little bit more difficult. Um, so we decided to move to Switzerland. And at this time, I believe I was about maybe two weeks and a half, maybe even three weeks, but a very young child. Um, and we resided in Switzerland. And believe it or not, out of the entire um, country, we didn't go ahead and locate in the city. We moved to a rural part of Switzerland um, called Zurich. And in Zurich, they speak Hochdeutsch, which is um, kind of like the posh version of German. So I speak Hochdeutsch. Um, ended up living there for about 13 years. Um, and because my mother was raised in the, um, in the farmland and she was very familiar with agriculture um, and farming, she specifically wanted us to also live in the rural parts of Switzerland. Of course, she wasn't really familiar with the setup of the country. She didn't realize that farming in East Africa would be so different to farming in Switzerland. She had also never left her home, nat- her native country. So it was a bit of a culture shock for her. She also struggled, but Eventually, um, after living there for about 13 years, my mother decided that it might be a little bit um, 
better for for her and for us to really grow up in a little bit more diverse neighborhood in a diverse area so that we're able to still adapt but also maintain our culture and then celebrate our culture so we ended up um, just, um cutting the story short moving to england um, and the way that migrants at the time would kind of pick and choose where they would go, um, it wasn't the lottery process. It was basically you reach out to your family members or friends that might have also migrated and you ask them, hey, you know, where do you live? How, are you able to find an employment there? Um, what is the weather like? How are you finding it there, et cetera? Is it safe? Are you able to, are you, you know, stable, et cetera? So it just seems from those conversations, many of our, um, many of the people and from within our culture moving to England. And so we did the same thing. Um, very for that so ended up making some great friends and meeting people that look like us um, and ended up moving in the city so no more farming there for my mom but we ended up being city children etc and I ended up staying there we lived there up until um, I finished high school middle school um, even parts of primary school and then I even started university there um, and then um, in the summer of 2000 and oh, I should know this 2011 or the summer of 2010 I met my now husband. He was from the United States and he had come for a summer program. And we met, we ended up um, really having, just establishing a relationship. And then when he returned back home to his country here in Buffalo, um, we just kind of maintained a relationship. We started dating, et cetera. And a few years later we got married um, and somebody had to make the sacrifice to either me moving to Buffalo or him moving to the UK. And since he had never left the US, he said, um, Juaria, why don't you move? Around <laughs> <laughs> before, <laughs> so it was you who made the sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I did that. So that's really what brought me to Buffalo. But my my home home has really been England for the longest time. Other than that, my so my family still live in the UK. Um, my siblings, my parents, etc. So yeah, kind of what brought me here. Amazing. So England is where you really spent the most time and like your formative years, basically. Yeah, I kind of approached my adulthood there, um, finished my schooling there, and really um, called my home now. And a lot of my friends are still back home. I tried to go now and then. The last time I visited was 2018 for my youngest brother's graduation. So that was that was really neat. But um, yeah, a little bit about the education piece, maybe. Um, oh, yeah. So I started my undergrad in the UK um, and obviously eventually ended up transferring here to, um, in, in Buffalo. And part of the reason why I didn't finish my undergrad in the UK was because I knew I wanted to pursue a graduate degree. So while I was in the UK, kind of making a decision as to whether I should move or not, um, I phoned a couple of the universities here in the US and you know, told them that I would be getting a bachelor's degree from the United Kingdom. How would that translate to pursuing a graduate degree? And a lot of times, um, some of the universities would respond, well, we might have to ask you to take some classes again because undergraduate here in the US takes four years, whereas in the UK, it's just three years. Um, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And part of it is because the, there's no elect, like, uh, elective classes that you have to take. So if you apply for a major, you only take classes in that major and that's it. So you wouldn't need the arts and all the other additional um, or languages. So and I didn't want that. I didn't want to walk away and finish a graduate degree and then have to come here just to start additional classes. So I said, well, what's the best option? And a lot of them just said, well, if you just transfer with your credits and not actually even graduate, that might be better because then you can just get your certification from here. Oh, so wow. I, did, um, I spent two years in the UK doing my um, bachelor's degree and then I ended up moving here. Um, and then I did another 18 months at UB for my undergrad and received my bachelor's degree, which kind of worked out fine. And then I didn't have any issues pursuing my graduate degree to follow. So mm -hmm. that was kind of neat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's nice when that stuff works out. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, now, what was it that drew you to city planning specifically? Yeah, um, I think, honestly, it just came naturally because um, I had, so I knew I was ethnically East African, but I was, I was less than a month old, so I had never really seen my native home country. So growing up in Switzerland and then um, going from the ag agriculture environment to then moving to a city, um, and once you're in Europe, you do a lot of traveling. We're very fortunate to actually travel to neighboring countries for about 50 pounds, which translates to maybe about $80. So you can go to France from England for five pounds on a ferry if you want to. You can fly to Sweden over the weekend for about 50 pounds again. So we spent a lot of times just traveling. And part of that, you just start to appreciate um, your environment and how, you know, people live, how they congregate, um, places that people feel attracted to, and then how opportunities kind of convey from there. And then also, I was able to fly back to my native country in 2006 for the first time, because my mom's mom, my grandmother was falling ill. And so that was the first time that I went back home, home, I guess, um, which felt really nice. Um, but I felt like I was a tourist again, because I was going um, somewhere that I had not you know, seen before. I felt like the people were different. I felt like the culture was different. The food tasted different um, from what I was familiar to. So with all of that, I think it just kind of, you know, built my um, curiosity on just how societies function and operate. So city planning was just something that I came across just strolling through one of the um, catalogs of what career to pursue. But before that, I did want to be a, like, I wanted to be a doctor just like everyone else. <laughs> Parents always tell you to be a doctor. You'd be good at that. <laughs> But you have to do what works for you and what you ultimately like. Yeah, absolutely. So what are then some of the differences? Because now you've, you know, you've traveled a lot and you've seen a lot of places and lived in a lot of places. What are some of the differences in terms of like city planning that maybe you like better versus other places where there are some things that you don't like? Yeah, um, I mean, city, so city planning can also um, be different depending on where you're studying from. Um, in the UK, of course, it's a lot more dense. There's a lot more high rises. Um, the types of issues and challenges that come about are different. Whereas here in Buffalo, for example, um, up until I came to Buffalo, I had never seen an abandoned building. I had never even seen a vacant lot. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so demand for, um, for land was so high in Europe that you would you would never think that anybody would abandon anything. Whereas here, of course, you've got Buffalo is a Rust Belt city, we've got old housing stock, et cetera. So the, the issues or the opportunities are just drastically different. So I think somehow I kind of appreciated doing, um, studying and understanding city planning um, from the European perspective, um, taking into account all the European related issues. Um, and I always had an interest ever since I went to East Africa in 2006, especially, um, specifically the Somali region. Um, I just had a specific interest in ways that um, different societies adapt and issues and challenges, whether it's to do with climate or just housing or post-Civil War um, reconstruction of societies. So I always kind of paid attention to that. But coming to Buffalo, honestly, the aspects of um, blight and um, again, vacant lots, that was definitely something new to me. Um, and then I started to study the history of Buffalo in terms of, you know, why there was a mass influx of people leaving, some of the issues that arose um, post, you know, um, post-slavery, post-Jim Crow era, et cetera. So, um, yeah, now I'm, I, I think I came from as a, I'm a transplant, but now I consider myself an ambassador. Mm -hmm. 
I love that. <laughs> Good way of putting that. Um, now, I don't know a whole lot about the field that you're in in terms of like the the gender demographic. Um, is it a field that is, are there a lot of women in the field or is it rare for a woman to be in the field? Yeah, good question. There's, it's, um, it depends. Um, a lot of women that, now maybe there's more women entering the field of urban planning. Um, but in terms of gender, there's definitely still, it's a male dominated field. Um, a lot of those professionals that then graduate and pursue um, a career in urban planning who end up securing a leadership position tend to be male. Um, but other than that, for, of course, secondary, then it's just female. But then for a minority woman, there's really not many women that are pursuing this field. And I always remind people, if, you're, if you have men design um, everything, you'll end up getting a world that just is tailored towards men. Little things like think of the bathroom stalls. Um, you, as a woman, you want to see bathroom stalls that have little pockets of hygiene um, areas that you can dispose of your hygiene feminine products. If you don't have that in your stall, that means now during the time when you might be menstruating, you don't have anywhere to dispose um, of the, your, the pad or any of those items. You might end up um, flushing it out of fear of having to, you know, pick it up and go find the nearest garbage bin, etc. Little things like that. Um, it's important to have women's voices in this field. Um, it's more important also to have women that can represent diverse fields to be, to be present. Um, so I would definitely encourage, I try to advocate for more women to um, join this field. But it kind of felt, it can be isolating sometimes. I remember um, during one of my studio classes, we were tasked with, um, this is my graduate career, we were tasked with um, redesigning Eastern Hill Mall and the 80 acres of land, um, the existing structure, the mall, obviously for many malls in the US, they all seem to be dying because the online platform is really taking over. And so Eastern Hill Mall um, had partnered with Uniland and they were looking to redevelop that site to um, like a, a live, play, um, eat, kind of a dine and kind of a lifestyle environment so that it would have mixed use of residential office spaces and also retail. And I think that would be a great amenity for the community. But the issue was um, UB students had to not only go there and really understand a, the space and how it's currently used, but we had to do something simple as kind of track to see roughly how many people, pedestrians or traffic there was. And so for someone that was not um, from that area, um, I, it, it was a little bit intimidating sometimes to have to go after school after 4.30 on a late evening, especially during winter when it was starting to get dark, to then account for traffic, just you know, with a pen and paper and just start writing that. And there were some times um, where I got some questions like, oh, hey, you know, what are you doing, et cetera. And sometimes it wasn't so pleasant, but um, things like that. And I know my colleagues um, who were white males didn't have some of those challenges. Um, a lot of people just assumed they might already be living there and that they were fine. Um, so things like that, it can, you know, be alarming to people. But I think um, if more people are given the opportunity and the resources, more minorities to, you know, to not only pursue a career in urban planning and other professionals, um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be that much hostility towards them when they are seen in these spaces. They wouldn't be looked at as doing anything different, but just doing their jobs. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I can definitely foresee that, that someone with like, a pad and paper that doesn't look like everyone else that's in the space that's like what are you doing here and it's it shouldn't be that way but I can see how that could happen in that situation and that's something that leaves you feeling unsafe which is just not 
right. Right. Now I'm thinking back to when you were making suggestions of like, perhaps like, you know, a place to put things in a bathroom, like sanitary spaces in a bathroom. Um, do you ever receive any pushback on that when you make those suggestions? Or is it more of a response where it's like, oh, I've never thought of that. I'm glad you're here to make that response <laughs> or make that suggestion. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, sometimes when you're, here's the thing, once you're at the table, um, it's important to not only contribute, but also, like I said, serve as an ambassador, but speak on behalf of others who are missing from the table. Um, so sometimes I guess if the room is, if the room is like, say for example, in a room of 10 people where you have nine males and one female, um, what are the likelihood for that one female to convey all the things that's on her mind? Whereas the dominant group that's already in the room might be kind of hovering around the same theme and they might be agreeing to it. So sometimes it's more of a, the balance of having a diverse group of people in the room to make those decisions. So the formation of the group setting is some, sometimes equally important. And then naturally I think ideas will flourish and naturally people feel comfortable to share them. Um, another really good example is for instance, when you think of um, an escalator. And I think this was uh, Mr. John Powell. I went to one of his lecture series. He came to UB. So I'm no, I don't want to take credit for this example. I know he gave it. So <laughs> think of an escalator, he said, and um, it moves you from location A to B and it works fine. And you think um, an escalator is awesome. Um, up until you now in that image, you insert somebody who has um, a disability. So somebody on a wheelchair and you look at that image and say, huh, there's an issue there. The person with the on the wheelchair is not able to get on the escalator. The problem is the person with the, the wheelchair. What do we do? That's how society looks at it. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be that way. It should be the person with a disability is the person with a disability, but the escalator is the problem. Why is the escalator not tailored um, or flexible enough to also support a person with a disability the same way they would with somebody who doesn't have a disability? So sometimes just thinking about it in that sense makes you realize serving the dominant group for all of your products um, or in terms of all of your design, um, it's going to leave somebody out. And the person with a disability, I think that was a really good example that John Powell gave. Um, so it just makes you think about who's the issue and then how to best solve the issue. So if we continue to look at the issue as the other entity, then we're, not, we're never going to reach to, that, to those groups. I really, really love that way of putting that. That makes perfect sense. And I think, <laughs> I mean, and I think urban planning, city planning is interesting because you do have to think about every single person that lives in a space. And it makes me wonder why we, people haven't been doing that. <laughs> You know, because yeah. it doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> Why wouldn't you tailor something to everyone that lives in a space? Uh, but I guess then it gets into the question of like, like money and just and you know doing the easiest versus the. I don't no, know. Absolutely. Do you know what I, I mean? mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about the U.S. for example, um, and it, even in Buffalo. Obviously, for many of the viewers, they're probably from Buffalo. So. Buffalo has, Buffalo is designed by Frank, um, oh my God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be said, so Frank Olmsted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> designed by Olmsted, and it was ranked as the best planned city. And part of it is because of the parkway systems and how they were connected. You've got 
Delaware Park that has it, that had at some point um, two parkway systems connected all the way to Martin Luther King Park, all the way to the bottom of South Buffalo. So, and now those parks don't exist the way that they did. So much of those wings that kind of came about from the um, Delaware Park are now transformed into expressways. So during the mobile, during the um, automobile era, of course, highways was a big thing. And where highways were placed were very strategic. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, when you talk to many city planners, they'll say this was the biggest mistake. The I-90 was the biggest mistake and the Skajakuta um, Expressway was the biggest mistake. And I say, no, it wasn't a big mistake. It was done deliberate. <laughs> we knew when we were doing, well, we knew exactly what we were doing. Um, and part of it is the expressways really what they did was, especially the eight lane expressways where it's underground, you know, it hides the ability of the person behind the wheel to even look around and pay attention to where they're driving by. It's almost like an in and out um, with no care to your surrounding. And sometimes when you're forced to look at your surrounding, you appreciate it or you pay attention to the opportunities and challenges and you become part of that society. But if not, you're really just cutting through and leaving. Um, and that's kind of what happens um, with the automobile era. What happened was there was obviously white flight and a lot of people who were economically um, of higher statuses were able to leave, which left um, a cluster of people who were just below the poverty line, especially Black and African Americans, left behind. And so the addition of the expressways meant that neighborhoods were torn apart. So you will see how some areas, especially the I-90, how the residential homes are lined up and then the expressway is right down. So imagine living there and in the past, you would have a beautiful parkway, very much to like hum um, Humboldt and Bidwell here in Elmwood, where you could cross over and say hi to grandma on the other side of the street. You're not able to do that anymore, which really put a strain on many communities. Another thing is where expressways were built, um, we had to, um, as, a as a municipality, we had to mark down those areas as slum areas. So in order for the state to give us those funding, we had to say, well, here are the slum areas in the city. Um, we need to um, demolish these areas and put, insert the expressway. Um, and some of the, most of those areas that were considered to be slum under this act were areas where African-Americans lived. And you'd be surprised by the parkway. Who would destroy the parkway? So the house around there especially where, where you know um, um black and brown residents who were of elites actually lived there and when they found out that the municipality was going to get rid of that um, parkway system and insert the highway a lot of them didn't believe it and said no way that's impossible who would get rid of this beauty but they did it happened so it really put a strain on many families but also um i think it was a morale kill and also just a bad decision for buffalo so um the best planned city at some point that title was very true um, and it's very unfortunate that you know we've got these expressway now but it makes sense at the time i think those decisions were made because um the same thought leaders were around the table um so it made sense to them hence we can't say um it was a mistake but it was deliberate um with diverse minds, with diverse groups, I think those decisions could have actually been avoided. But Buffalo, is, it's not unique to Buffalo. There's many cities like Buffalo that experience this. Um, now it's just more of, you know, how do we make sure that those neighborhood segregations um, no longer exist? How can we um, merge those barriers? You know, how, how do we do that? Because once you have an expressway within a neighborhood, you become socially isolated. You have an expressway um, which, is a, which acts as a barrier towards your school, towards your neighbors, and really towards your shopping and everything else. So an expressway is more than just um, a commuting path, but really can isolate many, many communities. And again, this is part of urban planning. Um, 
just the same way that we've done, you know, horrible decisions, it's important that we've got thought leaders in this field now to make better, to, better traditions that, um, or decisions that it's, that's going to integrate our community better. So, like you said, those decisions were very deliberately made and often like racially motivated. And is there something we can do to, I mean, this is such a, a simple way of asking this question. I feel like it's almost stupid for me to ask this question, but can we fix it? <laughs> is there a way to kind of, I mean, we can't go back. We can't go back. The decisions were made, but what do we do moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. There are many decisions that we can do. Um, I'll start off maybe with housing because I think once somebody's house is a safe place to live and stay, um, your, day is, your day is a little bit better and easier because you go to work, you go to school, and if you have to then come back to a home where it's filled with lead and filth and it's blighted, um, your health outcome is obviously going to be reduced, et cetera. And you're not going to be in a safe um, position to really um, grow and have a better quality of life. So for housing, for instance, it's we have an old housing market, um, old housing stock, I should say. And some of the things that really um, discourage a lot of people from even um, bringing up their property to code, for instance, or fixing up their home is because of the market value. So if, for example, it costs $25,000 to fix your roof, um, but your home or the market suggests that your home is only worth $13,000, you're not going to spend $25,000 to, to fix the roof because what's the point of that investment? So the market value can really be a hindering for people to actually go about and fix their homes if they financially can. And then there's the group that actually can't do that anyway because A, they're renters or they're on a fixed income or they're a senior or they're a new American or they're just someone who has been historically marginalized. What, whoever that category, or whatever that category the person fits in, it's either other resources where they can be encouraged to bring up their property to code so it, the house can be fixed, or um, are there any other subsidies, ways that we can mitigate this issue, issue so that the market value can increase. And so that's one thing. Um, another aspect within the house, of course, is um, for many individuals here in Buffalo, there's a lot of seniors or individuals that live alone. So one, when they live alone, if they don't have a will or they don't have a means to offer or translate that wealth to the next generation, that's also a problem. So there's also a little bit of an inherent mess on that. Um, a, because many of the resources that were offered years and years ago, even up, in, up until now, like you think about the GI Bill and other resources as such, it was only made available to um, non-Blacks, for example. And so if you're a Black or a minority, you were not able to benefit from those resources. So you, you couldn't just you know, either pack up your bags and find a, a beautiful suburban home, or even stay in the city and purchase your home and own land. So for a lot of the families now that live in subsidized housing, or whether it's Section 8 or even um, the Buffalo Municipal Housing Districts, et cetera, they're never in a position to leave that cycle so that they can also um, own a property. Because living in that subsidized unit means you're obviously going to be dependent on the government, et cetera, but you're also never empowered to live in your own means and have your own home. Whereas for um, 
a lot of the other folks, especially the white folks back in the 1930s, if you were white and you were struggling, um, there was a lot of government handouts where we were able to say, hey, we encourage you to go and find a new place, go find new land. And you, that's it. You can own that land. Do you want a new house? Here's a, here's a mortgage that we can offer you at zero interest rate, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we really need to be very creative about ways that we can um, level um, the playing field and say, hey, historically, you've been marginalized how can we best support you and actually make it targeted? Because when the lowest person in the community is uplifted, it really impacts everybody. And I think it uplifts the entire society because we're, if more people have um, dollars in their pockets, that means they're going to go out and spend that money. And if they're spending that money, it's going back towards the taxes and it's going towards the betterment of that city. So I think overall it's a win-win, but um, housing is definitely one. I think there's a couple of different um, programs that are going on right now to help people um, with the um, reduction of lead, et cetera, because lead is obviously very critical. We don't want lead in children. We don't want we don't want it in children's bloods, et cetera. So the exposure of lead is reducing that is definitely a big deal right now in many of the municipalities here in Western New York. Um, but there's definitely more that needs to happen, more that needs to be done. Um, and I think it starts off with education because a lot of people seem to think people that are struggling or are from low-income backgrounds, they're there because they're just lazy or they're not working hard, et cetera. But just to have an empathetic mindset to understand how and why they're in this position because of the generational um, inequalities that kind of took place over the years, Hence, this outcome. I think that's important, and that empathy is really what's going to help with um, building this sense of community. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you're out here because I know you've done interviews with a lot of people talking about this stuff really specifically. Like when you put it that way, it's so much has so many people have had so many things up against them that have nothing to do with decisions that they've made at all, right. and it really makes it unfair. And hearing empathy I agree is like totally the piece for everything I think that that could change a lot of things in our world if people could stop and kind of see things from another person's perspective or their, another person's experience even generations back absolutely I agree with that so the question that I wanted to ask before we move on to the womanhood questions um if any of my listeners are interested in you know, a lot of the things that you were talking about in terms of like equity and like getting involved and learning more about their own city in terms of this stuff. Um, can you point them to any resources? Yeah, sure. There's, there's a ton of different resources. Um, first, I would say get involved, you know, get involved with your local university, local school, etc. There's so many um, thought leaders, leaders who have studied literature on not only segregation, but post Jim Crow era, et cetera, how it's left, you know, um, the inequalities in housing, uh, many of our education systems, et cetera. You can do that, of course, in the libraries and get those information. But if you want to talk to somebody, I would start off by maybe just um, Googling um, university faculties and you'll get a sense of which faculties and what classes they teach. Many of them are always looking to connect with community people, but they don't do that enough. Um, so if you're one, if you're somebody, I would highly encourage you to do that. Something else also is to kind of connect with your local municipality. So if you live in Buffalo, um, City Hall in um, downtown Buffalo would obviously be your location. There's the Division of Citizen Services, the one that I work at. Um, it's primarily the number one commodity is people. So any issue that affects people, we deal with it. So I would consider reaching out to them. Um, I should say us. <laughs> yeah, that would be you, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
um, so a lot of that information, again, you can find it online at cityofbuffalo.com. So if you just go to the City of Buffalo website, you'll be able to get a list of all the different city departments um, and the resources they offer. And you'll be able to sit down with at least somebody from the building or somebody from the department to help you through either connect you with another local nonprofit that might be advocating some of the work that you're interested in. Um, if not, the education industry, of course. Um, but yeah, resources are available. It's at our fingertips. So I hope some of our viewers are going to do that. All right, now that I'm gonna have to talk to some of my students about getting into this field so we can get more women into this field. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Joeri, I'm gonna ask you my, my question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what does it mean to you to be a woman? Um, what does it mean to be a woman? So. I also don't have a sister. I only have brothers. So it's, I feel like I grew up as a bit of a tomboy and didn't really get to appreciate my womanhood until I was an adult. <laughs> um, but um, so, yeah, it was, it's sometimes it can be a little frustrating when you talk to other women, for example. So I have some friends um, that's, again, female friends that are kind of living a different life to the life that I'm living in. A, because sometimes they don't have um, the ability to make the choices that they want to because of peer pressure, because of society pressure, because of family expectations. Um, and sometimes this fear of, you know, how, it's, how will society perceive of me if I make this decision? It's not appropriate or fitting for someone as such and such to do this. So there's sometimes a lot of the, the unknown fear, whereas I think um, oftentimes for, for men, it's that confidence of, I am the right person, I'm fit for this work, I'm fit for this job, I am making the right decision. And then others usually look towards men as by default leaders, um, by default um, decision makers, and by default those that um, we can trust. Sometimes there's that by default um, support that they have and privilege. And I remind a lot of my friends, whether, it's, whether they fit into that category or not, um, you have to sometimes believe in yourself that you also can. Um, and irrespective of even the belief, you need to have some sort of a support system. So I think educating your inner circle, your parents, your family members, if you have kids, if you've got um, immediate relatives and friends, um, let them know that it's okay um, to live the life that you wish to and, and that you don't have to be an equal of a man. Um, I always tell people that like men are not the benchmark. <laughs> men are men, women are women. And we don't have to always compete and say, well, what a man can do, women can do. No, there's a lot of things that men can do that we don't even want to do. And there's things that we do that men can't do even if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the comparison, sometimes I find that a little bit funny, but I always tell people they're not the benchmark. Don't look at them as the benchmark. Uh, be your own benchmark. Look at other women as the benchmark. Um, but I think depending on where you are, depend, um, based on your society, I think that's also is a big important factor. Um, something I also want to just bring up is, of course, visibly, you can see that I'm wearing a headscarf. Um, in, in my religion, in, in the Muslim faith, um, you will see most women wearing some sort of a head veil. And so the head veil in Arabic is just called hijab, which just means veil. Um, but that's just in Arabic. Otherwise, oftentimes people will just say headscarf, or I've heard people say head wrap, um, sometimes a scarf, um, whatever, whatever works really. There isn't a set way, but you'll notice um, a Jamaican Muslim um, or a French Muslim or a British Muslim or an African or like an East African Muslim, the type of scarf that they wear is a little bit different. Um, so it's very much similar to like style, people, the way that people style their um, clothes. Um, 
the scarf is also the same way. You'll see some people kind of wearing it like a turban backwards. The color, the thickness of the material can be different. You see, I have a little knob here. Um, different people just do different creative things with it. Mm -hmm. And in just for anyone that's wondering, um, it's usually encouraged for women and also men to wear or dress in a modest way. So with the headscarf, it's just supposed to um, encourage modesty wear. But there's also a ton of other factors that come with modesty. The way that you speak to others um, with modesty is critical. The way that you carry yourself. So just wearing the headscarf and then kind of leaving everything else out. Um, doesn't qualify you as a good Muslim. <laughs> That's not really how it works. And it should, your outerwear shouldn't really be um, your first priority anyway. For a lot of people, um, and even for myself, the way that you are innerly is really, really more important because if you are not someone who's empathetic and caring towards others and you're kind of, you know, if you're not that person and then you're dressed in a very Islamic way, it doesn't really add up. So that's one thing. Another thing is for the headscarf, um, some, it is true, some women wear it by choice, but some are forced to wear it. So that also plays into, you know, what does femininity mean in Islam? And so for a lot of people who might not be educated from the religion, when they hear of stories where they see women who are forced, and then sometimes those women end up speaking out, they tend to believe that, oh, all women are obviously being suppressed in this religion, and they are having to wear this out of their own will. It's not true. Um, it's very unfortunate that they are being forced. It shouldn't be um, that way. Nobody should be forced. Um, the religion goes against it, but culturally, sometimes a lot of people will do that. And very much similar to Christianity and other religions, um, the, the dress code of women has always been forced on them in a very patriarchal way. Sometimes when women wear a bikini, it's, oh, you know, cover up. And then sometimes when they're covered up, it's, aren't you hot in everything you're wearing? So you can't really win. And you've got to be careful when these men and society kind of add, you know, tell you what it is. I hope more women can kind of speak up on their own issues and say, if they are forced, they can speak up and they're encouraged to speak up. And for others that wear it by choice to also advocate for it and say, hey, I'm doing this by choice. I want to and I can. So I think just allowing women to have the right to make their own decisions about their own bodies. I think that's kind of where my firm line is. Um, however a woman chooses to dress or how they choose to um, um, define themselves and their bodies, um, that's really something that I'm passionate about. I'm always kind of advocating for that element of choice. But um, again, it's so important for women, maybe even women that look like me to be able to say this because I don't know if everybody's aware of these issues, but for those that are following kind of um, the stigma, et cetera. I think it's important to just dissect a stigma and get some clarity and understanding that someone wear it by choice and some unfortunately are being forced because of their own culture um, and other um, patriarchal issues that are going on in their society. And I think that all kind of fits into that empathy piece that you were talking about before is having the understanding and not making a judgment based on the way someone looks or the way someone dresses. And so you address like like ideally i think that you know wearing it is a choice and then kind of like a lifestyle choice of all the things that go along with it um but as you said in some countries women are forced to you know cover their faces cover their whole bodies um and but i i'm thinking i of stories i've heard i think it's france where the laws kind of go the other way where they had like the rule against women wearing like burkinis, is that how you say it? Burkinis at the beach. And so then again, like, I think the intention behind that was, you know, trying to prevent 
women from being forced to do something, but it's forcing them to do something else and not allowing them to make that choice. So yeah. like ultimately the choice is what we need, is what women need in general. Yeah, actually speaking of that, I remember seeing a meme um, of an image um, of a police officer yelling over, um, he had like a stick hovering over a lady who had a burkini on, telling her, no, you can't be here anymore, you've got to go. And then right next to it, they had another image um, where um, they ha they were trying to measure, like, I think it was the length of a woman who was wearing a bikini. And they were saying, oh, this is, this is inappropriate, you can't wear this. So either side seems to be you know, men are dictating how women should be living their lives and how they should be dressed. And it's usually because men have an issue with how women are and if they feel like it's liberating a woman or it's giving her um, that, a sense of entitlement to take ownership of her own. I think they find that challenging. Um, I'm, not everybody, of course, but for those specific men who seem to always have an issue with women on these, um, on these aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I think the element of choice is so, so critical. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that doesn't even consider... Um, that's like just the physical outward appearance and it doesn't consider anything else that goes along with it. Even something else, I mean, um, you think about um, the will for, not will, um, dowry for instance. Mm -hmm. um, dowry can be the exchange of gifts during marriage. Um, Islamically, um, it's once you, once a man and woman get married, they're supposed to, prior to the wedding, um, come to a mutual consensus to discuss um, what the diary item should be. So a woman can say, for my wedding gift, I would like um, $5,000, or I would like um, the Bible book. I would like uh, dozens of flowers. It could be anything and everything. She could say education, whatever she wants. But the aspect of the diary is the man has to offer that gift to her, um, but they also are supposed to make an agreement whatever that timeline should be. Does she want it now? Does she want it 30 years from now? Um, is she going to forgive it eventually? That's all up to her, but it's something that is her right. And even if he was to pass, say, within a certain period of time, unless she forgives him for that dowry, her family, his family is actually supposed to pay up that dowry amount, even after his death. Um, so that's how, legally how it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, what you see is in some parts of... Um, some of the Muslim worlds. I had a friend who was from Yemen. She told me that when she wanted to get married to a friend of her, a friend of her friend who was from Saudi Arabia, that her father said, okay, he wanted a $3,000, no, I think it was a $5,000 dowry and he wanted the money to go towards him. And for the longest time, I kept trying to remind her and say, hey, you know, it's like, legally, that's not even right. You do realize the dowry is supposed to be your gift. And if you want, it can be $0. Like if you are both students, and you know, he doesn't have that money. There's no point asking for that money. Plus, the dowry is not supposed to be a shock on the day of the wedding, because it's supposed to be announced by the, um, the, the imam or the person who's kind of bringing them together in unity. And both of them should have agreed prior. So the fact that the father was involved, the fact that he wanted it, it shows culturally how he was misinformed. And then she wasn't in a position to even speak up and say, no, this is not what's going to happen. And she kept telling me, Jewelry, I think I'm just going to go ahead with it. I'm in love with this man. And my dad, I, I can't seem to get my dad out of my case. So I think I'm just going to go with this, whatever. Um, so little things like that. And sometimes those aspects make the big headlines and kind of show a skewed version of um, how the religion is supposed to be practiced and I remind them religion is not culture there are a set of rules and regulations and there's a there's a book and there's understandings and then there's scholars that you can listen to um, and in any religion I think if there's ever injustice um, it's 
you know, you should be able to read it and say, okay, here's where it's wrong and here's where it's right. And you should be able to then take what, you know, you feel comfortable is right from that text or um, scriptures. Um, because there's many things that we're going to see in scriptures where we don't agree with them necessarily. Um, plus, a lot of the scriptures, obviously, over 1400 years old. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's another example. But um, um, it's, again, just circling back to the element of choice for women. I think traditionally, both um, in faith, um, in education, in the workplace, there's a ton of different barriers. But what's really just inspiring to see is, you know, you've got a great show here, you know, you've invited me. So you've given me this platform to talk about some of the issues that impact me and some of the issues that impact others that are also viewing um, the segment today. And the more we have that, the more we normalize these issues, the more we uh, encourage and inspire hopefully more women to be able to stand up and vocalize their concerns and then make, you know, take the decision on their own rather than having to rely on someone else. And if they want to rely on someone else, it should be again by choice. <laughs> if they, and if they don't want to, then they should be able to make those decisions on their own. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I've been doing this now. This is my 66th episode and I've just learned so much from every woman that I've talked to and everyone has their own personal story, personal background, um, things that like happened in their family, happened in their culture. And then there's like a thread of womanhood that's common that goes through all of them. Um, because there are certain things that are just part of the, the experience of womanhood for everybody, um, despite those differences. So I, I love that. <laughs> um, so what is your least favorite part of being a woman? Um, so I don't know if it's the least favorite part of being a woman for me, but something I noticed is, um, if as a woman, when you're raised by, um, a single mother, especially a strong single mother, an independent single mother, you kind of get raised in a household where your mother acts as the father and the mother. And because the mother is so independent and just a great, <laughs> a great leader in both of those spaces, as a woman, you end up translating those skills as I can be anything and I'm very independent, which is excellent. Um, until you have a life partner and you realize, oh my goodness, how do I share some of this space with this person and make them feel comfortable? Um, I have sometimes seen that um, because unfortunately my parents did split apart. They had a great relationship, but they did split apart. Um, and being raised by a very strong mother, I realized that I was becoming a very strong person. So when I met my husband, sometimes there were little things that I would forget to take into account, like decision-making with the children. I'd be like, oh, it's not a big deal. I already did this. And remind me, hey, you know, this is the partner. It'd be nice if you told me about it. Um, and think of it as a big deal in the beginning, but many, there was just many times that we would have those types of instances. And it wasn't turning into a big fight or an argument, but little aspects where you would co-parents or make a co-decision um, you feel too empowered to just do it on your own and you sometimes leave out your spouse um, and then they can feel a little bit vulnerable in that. So I've had to learn to be able to have my guard down and not always think of myself as the, the person who can accomplish everything on their own, but realize there's a, the least favorite part of being a woman, like I mentioned, it's sometimes um, with this new phenomenon of just, you know, be, be the feminist that you want to be, be your own independent, like the best version of yourself, et cetera. There's a lot of hype and focus on you as an individual, you know, um, being able to achieve everything. 
but I think, um, and sometimes that can also be translated from your parents if you're if you kind of lived with a single mother who also raised you on her own, um, that has that powwow attitude of, you know, you can do everything on your own, your own, your own, your own. You sometimes forget the, the, the reason of the communal effort, the importance and the value of having your spouse or your partner or your friends or your community, their support and that collaboration, like how important and valuable that is. Um, and a good example for me is like I mentioned earlier for between my husband and I, I've had to learn how to be my strongest advocate, but also be vulnerable enough where I can say, hey, you're my, you know, you're my co-partner, let's do this together. And just realizing that there's a value in the collaboration and not always just thinking you and your own version is always the best version. So being able to say yes and open to other criticisms and support, I think that's so important. So that's the, the reason why I say that's my least favorite is because it's, it took me some time to learn. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that came to me naturally. The other side of that came to me naturally where I felt very independent and empowered. But um, I think it also takes great skill um, and wisdom to say, how can I work with others so that I can also just continue to be elevated? I think that was probably the most challenging for me. Mm -hmm. Now on the flip side, what is your favorite part of being a woman? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I mean, personally, I, I don't, I have, I've never, um, I guess I've never been a man, so I don't know what it would have been like, but I'm sure if I was a man, maybe I wouldn't have had um, some of the, I don't think I would have had the same lessons that I've learned, the same experiences, everything that's shaped me. I think that would have been different. But honestly, being a woman and just being myself, my identity means that um, I've been able to bring my experiences to the table. I've been able to um, hopefully flip some minds that normally were very um, stern or on the opposite side of the aisle. Um, I've been able to bring those people on board. Um, and I think just in my nature, I've, I'm a very much of a people's person. So I think of myself as a connector and, and a collaborator. So I don't know if I would have had those skills and traits if I was a man. <laughs> so I guess that's also another part of my favorites. Um, and then Probably the most of it all, um, I got to experience life, you know, what it's like to be a mother. Um, I have two sons of my own. So it's, it's always a blessing to be able to see what the, what the mind and body and the soul and the spirit of a woman can do. Um, you go through childbirth, you go back to work, you navigate so much systems, you deal with all the peer pressure in society. And yet um, sometimes society still expects you, you know, to go on and not complain, but um, I give myself the room and the space to um, to vent if I need to, to get frustrated if I need to, to cry on a, on a friend's shoulder if I need to. So all of those opportunities and experiences have shared, you know, have really made my identity and shaped my identity. So I think everything um, about being a woman is my favorite part. I don't think there's anything that I can complain about, to be honest. Yeah. I love that answer. And I mean, your it's like your least favorite answer wasn't anything that was like, terrible it was just something that didn't come naturally that you had to learn yeah <laughs> no absolutely yeah especially with, because with the least one the issue is if um you become if you isolate yourself and think of yourself as the the only person that can solve everything you become a lone wolf and you kind of neglect the role of others in society especially men mm -hmm. um 
because there are certain times where women are taking charge in relationships or in other aspects of you know of the workforce etc whatever that space might be and there's some men that feel like they don't have a role anymore so i think the co-parenting role is very important but that's just only from a simple one lens perspective i'm sure um obviously many can relate and say it's really men that dominate many sectors anyway um but for for women that are in a position where they can lead and um show others how to live their best version i think it's important that they include the empowerment but also the you know lean on others and get their support how equally that's important for just building of society as a whole so i think you just need to advocate and speak more on those issues and just for me it just didn't come to me naturally unfortunately so i had to learn we all have to learn something that's yours <laughs> um jamaria who are the women that you admire the most oh I think a very cliche answer, of course, my mom. Um, my, in the UK, we would say my mom instead of my mom. <laughs> um, I yeah. feel like every person who says that needs to get me their mom on the show. Because <laughs> a lot of people say that, and I'm like, okay, then I want to talk to your mom next. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, my mom's just been through a lot. I mean, to think of yourself as she was in her 20s when she had to pack up her bag and leave a civil war torn country and from her experiences she said you know everything was safe she went to school normally she she had a part-time job like every other young person you know she was living the life that she wanted um they were they had a nice yard the streets were fine traffic light was fine people were going about their business as normal and then suddenly there was the civil war and that was very difficult for her she said she didn't know what to do she didn't realize um, that she was ever going to be put in a position where she would have to leave her home. Um, and also, so to have to do that in your 20s with little children, um, I can't imagine. And then to move to a country where you don't speak the language, let alone the culture. Um, and then for her, like if you think of the term black people, for example, in East Africa, nobody would say hey that's a black person because everybody's black yeah. so then you come here and you in um in europe or the western world and you kind of see the the isolation or the terms and you, you're not used to that so i think she went through those challenges in addition to that just stabilizing herself and and then the breakup i think all that pressure kind of just led to the breakup between my parents um so i wonder how life would have been if none of that happened i don't know um but I'm grateful for how things have turned out because for many families, you know, they've not been able to sustain themselves or to be able to move up and elevate their life. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. But my mom is definitely one. She helped me. Um, she raised me in terms of my, my spiritualness, kind of guided me as a woman and just as a friend and a mentor. Um, outside of that, um, um, I think right now something very relevant would be Michelle Obama. I very much look up to her. Um, read her book cover to cover and I highly recommend it and and, and then there's also um, the first when I first started practicing I was 17 years old my um, started practicing the religion of Islam so at 17 I started studying the religion and that's when I started wearing the headscarf and kind of understanding what the religion means for me um, and somebody that I came across her name was um, Khadija I don't remember her last name but she was the the wife of the prophet and she had um she was 40 years old and married the prophet when he was 25 and i thought holy cow that's wow. yeah <laughs> especially during that era so she was a divorcee she was 40 years old she had a she had a business and she married the prophet who was 25 and he was an orphan and she's the one who proposed to him and i thought wow 
I feel like I've read about her. Didn't she like inspire him in some ways to like spread the religion and and she was the first businesswoman, et cetera. So for I think she's just a really good reminder of, you know, A, when society tells you, you know, you've got to be a certain age to get married or you've got to be this and that. Um, the fact that she was able to do that as a 40-year-old divorcee and very 25-year-old young person, um, especially because he wasn't even wealthy, so she could have married anyone else in her financial category, and she didn't. Um, she married a class that she wanted, that she proposed. I thought that was super heroic. I'm all for women proposing if they need to or if they want to. <laughs> 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 yeah, sort of inspired me just in terms of her work, mm -hmm. but also just her characteristics and how she was empathetic towards um, others and how she, other people just looked towards her as a person who was fair and just when they had issues, etc. So I hope, I mean, I hope through my my you know my lifetime i'll be able to continue working on myself because i know there's a lot of flaws within me but um i think it's so important to always just have another woman to look up to whether it's a big sister a mother a good friend um somebody on tv whatever that is just to be able to find someone who can then kind of bring you under their wing and you know be their mentor i think that's so so important not only for your confidence but also just for your future perspective i think that's so important so i kind of do that really there's a ton of names that i could be naming in almost every setting i try to find myself that big sister somebody i can kind of look up to and say hey you know this is this is what's going on how would you best deal with this you know you've had this experience before you've worked in the community for so many years how would you deal with this issue and one good advice my mom always said is, you know, be like a fly. Don't let anything attached to you, especially with issues. Sometimes good work can come with a lot of noise and other distraction. And it's important to dissect that and say, let me focus on the positive and just kind of weave down on the, on the noise so that you don't get distracted every time. Um, so you don't have to win every single um, battle. You just want to win the war. So you don't get caught up in the little things. Sometimes focus on the big picture. Not saying that you should focus on war. That's not, but it's, uh, <laughs> I know. I got it. I know what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> well, Julia, thank you so much for being a guest on Womankind. This was a great conversation and I can't wait to share it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kelsey. I really enjoy speaking with you. Um, Womankind listeners, if you're looking to get in touch with Womankind, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Womankind Podcast. Um, you can email me at womankindpodcast at gmail.com or visit my website at www.womankindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye, friends.